and welcome to episode 55 of the Movie Brats podcast. I am Carter, and joining me, as always, is Jonathan. How are you doing, Jonathan? I'm doing fine, getting towards the end of the year. It's already going to be Thanksgiving before we know it, and it's really kind of in the midst of award season. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think I've been to like 10 movies in theaters in the last month and a half, so I'm just absolutely cooking right now as far as consuming motion pictures is going and with the stuff coming out in the next month or so i don't see myself stopping soon you have uh you've been blazing the trail through movie theaters this last month as well haven't you right i live in the upstate of south carolina so there are a number of movies that i want to see like the velvet underground and passing that are not playing anywhere near me but both those movies are streaming but i Mm -hmm. feel like i'm cheating on movie theaters (laughs) uh And, you know, but I have seen a lot of movies. There are some that are exclusively in theaters, including the first film we're talking about today. Mm -hmm. We are going to be reviewing a Timothy Chalamet double feature of The French Dispatch and Dune, starting off with The French Dispatch, directed by Wes Anderson, who has also done The Royal Tenenbaums, The Grand Budapest Hotel, and his recent movie, Isle of Dogs. It stars Jonathan. Do you want to take this? Right. I made a list. So here are some of the actors who have been in at least one other Wes Anderson film for this. Bob Balaban, Adrian Brody, Willem Dafoe, Angelica Houston, Francis McDormand, Bill Murray, Edward Norton, Sarah Sharonin, Leah Sadu, Liv Schreiber, Jason Schwartzman, Fisher Stevens, Tilda Swinton, and Owen Wilson. And then the actors who this is the first film they've ever been in, directed by Wes Anderson, Timothy Chalamet, Benicio Del Toro, Griffin Dunn, Elizabeth Moss, Lois Smith, Christoph Waltz, Henry Winkler, and Jeffrey Wright. That's all the time we have, folks. (laughs) The movie uh, is about three different storylines of a French foreign (laughs) weekend magazine, I believe, of the fictional Liberty Kansas Evening Sun newspaper after its uh, founder and editor dies before its final issue. It originally premiered July 12, 2021 at the Cannes Film Festival and was released wide in theaters, exclusively in theaters, October 22nd, a Metacritic score of 74 and a Rotten Tomatoes score of 75. That is the French Dispatch. Uh, I saw this a couple weeks ago. I think I was by myself with two other people in the theater and I had a very, very good time chuckling to myself for about two hours enjoying the latest Wes Anderson movie. Did you have a similar experience? No, because I mean, I enjoyed it, but I saw it in its third week of release on a Saturday in Greenville, South Carolina, and there were like 30 or 40 people. Really? Oh, wow. Look at that. I would have loved to see it with a nice crowd. I think the two people behind me weren't really getting it the same way. They were asking questions like the whole time. I don't know. What was this? Was it an older couple? It was, yeah, it was an older couple. Right. Classic no, there were a afternoon of, older couple going to see a movie. No, there were a lot of people and younger people at my screening. I went with my friend Ray, who's in his 70s, and he uh, chuckled and enjoyed the film. Um, I've seen all of Wes Anderson's previous films, and I've seen all of his since the Darjeeling Limited in a theater in their original release. I wouldn't say... I mean, definitely Wes Anderson is not one of my 10 favorite living directors. Mm -hmm. I don't love his films, uh, but I thoroughly have enjoyed 
all of them and some more than others, but uh, there isn't one that I would give a thumbs down to. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't think this is of, I think this is his 10th feature, if I'm not uh, mistaken. It's around 10, but uh, it wouldn't be like top three for me. My my personal favorites are Fantastic Mr. Fox and The Grand Budapest Hotel, but it's an exquisitely made film with, as I rattled off, with an impeccable cast, <laughs> some of them barely in the movie, but uh, some of them giving really great comedic performances. And I think that one thing that saves his movies from the criticisms that they're all just production design and you know it's all just surface is that they are so incredibly well made mm-hmm. that there's just, yes, there is the enjoyment of just the technical aspects, the, you know, what you're looking at, but the movies are funny. They're all comedies and they're legitimately funny and really smart and well-written. And I think that even if this one is not his most emotionally mm-hmm. uh, resonant film, the most stirring, there is this uh, tinge of melancholy throughout the whole film. I mean, it starts with uh, the Bill Murray's character, the head, the lead editor uh, passing away. And it starts with the obituary Mm-hmm. you know, at least mentioning that he passed away. And I just think that, uh, you know, there, this, this film has three different stories and they're not really connected in any way <laughs> no. uh, besides having them be stories from this uh, magazine, yes. but they have thematic connections. Mm-hmm. And I think that the film, like I said, it doesn't have kind of the emotional uh, not that any of his movies have been like profoundly emotional, but some of them have a little bit more weight to them. But there is this tinge of melancholy in the film that adds uh, a little bit of weight to what as otherwise could just be kind of fluff and, uh, you know, just accessories like the visuals and everything. It could mm-hmm. just kind of float away, but the the melancholy kind of brings it back down to earth. No, definitely. And uh, I think you mentioned uh, before we recorded that, pretty much all of his movies have at least some sort of serious aspect to them, like whether it be a death of a significant character or characters dealing with the, the death of someone that happened before the events of the movie. Um, but I thought that particularly in this one, the Timothy Chalamet uh, section, the revisions to a manifesto was, uh, I thought that was probably the most poignant um, out of the three. Um the third one was very silly, uh, but extremely like creative. And I don't think I'd ever seen really anything uh, sort of just do what it was doing in the third one, which is about like a sort of like crime. It was sort of like a, like a high and low kind of police procedural, but also mixed with the farce mixed with like sort of like an expose on cooking. Yeah. (laughs) But also sort of being about like, a talk show and being interviewed for that and sort of reciting uh, verbatim a magazine in Britain and sort yeah. of Jeff- Jeffrey sort Wright, of style. Jeffrey <laughs> yeah. Wright kind of playing a James Baldwin type yeah. uh, literary figure. But the uh, second one that I thought man. was extremely sort of uh, French New Wave influence, like ex- like very much like wearing like a Godard sort of influence on his sleeve, and was very right. sort of funny like send up of the era and also sort of a. Uh, uh, I, it seemed to me at least to sort of comment on the sort of protest movement overtaking youth culture in you know, contemporary society in the last couple of years. Did you get that a bit from the second one? Right. And it also shows, I, I mean, like I said, all of his movies are really funny 
and it shows how serious and motivated they are, but they're also very consumed at the same time with uh, young people drama and problems mm-hmm. you know the the woman who seems the most militant and concerned she's constantly looking at herself in her compact mirror you know uh-huh. <laughs> and uh there there's a funny commentary on how people can be extremely politically motivated but at the same time they're dealing with you know trying to sneak into the opposite sex dorm rooms uh-huh. you know uh but uh yeah and i i think the the first section is probably my favorite it's just the funniest i think that was definitely the, the funniest and i think had the sort of most uh it's sort of like a send up on 20th century art and specifically like art dealers um i think it was sort of influencing uh what's brute art is the movement where they would like have people on insane asylums make art and then they would hang it in in galleries and stuff like that and i was reading stuff on wikipedia apparently it's based on a specific art dealer the um adrian brody character who would like inflate the sort of reputations of these artists that he discovered and would sort of create a market um but they were actually it actually had some very sort of interesting um uh what do you call it with the uh four by three and Right. Well, I mean, I would say I would say about half the film is in black and white. It goes back and forth constantly, even within the same sections and even within the same scenes, there will be uh, black and white and then color. The aspect ratio changes. Aspect ratio, yes. Right. And which is something he did with Grand Budapest Hotel as well. Right. And I think that he also uh, he's always interested in narrative and how you frame a story i mean this mm-hmm. has you know i mean he i was listening to an interview where he says he often has these disparate ideas and they come together in one movie so he had an idea for doing uh kind of an omnibus film or anthology film where he had multiple stories and then he had an idea of doing a film that was connected to France. And then he had an idea about doing, I mean, the the magazine's very obviously uh, based on the New Yorker. And he said, I wanted to do a New Yorker film, like something that was like the New Yorker and the stories. There was also a report that this was gonna be a musical at one point. Yeah, I don't know if there was any truth <laughs> to that because there isn't anything at no. all. But, I mean, there's music in the film, but uh, no one breaks into song. No. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I sometimes start watching a Wes Anderson film and I kind of get a little tense and go, oh, this is so precocious and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so up its own ass. Very meta, ways. sort right. of postmodern. And, right. And but then you start laughing and yeah. you just get swept up in it and it's legitimately funny and the <laughs> actors are so committed. And I think that Wes Anderson is so sincere. He doesn't seem to be making it just twaddle like yeah it, that it's ethereal nothing no his movies it, usually aren't like ironic and they're not like you know all of this is like totally pointless like sort of um like sort of like uh uh piero lefou piero lefou so the sort of guard godard movie which is very like nihilistic in a in the way postmodern movies can be sort of nihilistic and they're sort of self-referential and uh you know everything's sort of trite everything's meaningless you don't really get that and I thought that especially came out in the uh, revisions to a manifesto section. There was a very, uh, there's a very nice sort of like postscript that the uh, Timothy Chalamet character narrates as we sort of get the final section of that, that I thought was very poignant. Um, and then uh, 
I couldn't quite get like what was happening with the Leia Sedu character in the the art section, but I don't know. It seemed like there was more going on there than um, maybe I expected uh, from just the well, sort of she's, stuff I, I'd seen. I think she's very funny because she's so uptight. Yeah, uh, and yet she'll pose <laughs> nude for him, and when he comes up and starts trying to smear the paint on her actual skin, she slaps him away and won't let him, you know, touch her anymore. Yeah, but it's you know, there's been this idea that there are prison guards and p- women who love prisoners. And mm-hmm. this guy is clearly insane. The one played <laughs> by Benicio Del Toro. Uh, but it's just amusing. Her that kinda... had the sort of most interesting stylistic uh, flourishes in it. There was one part where the Benicio Del Toro character is played by a different actor, Tony Revolori, who had been in Grand Budapest Hotel. And like <laughs> when Benicio Del Toro takes over as the older version, they like greet each other on his way out. I thought that was kind of cool. So right. that had the sort of most interesting stylistic sort of aspects to it. Um, right. And even though there's clearly CGI in the film in parts, uh, there is a really cool part where there is a technique where everything in the frame is frozen and mm-hmm. the camera goes through. But I think here, everyone is just actually standing still. And like when there's a cart in the air, it must be dangling from a rope. And mm-hmm. when someone is like spraying a fire extinguisher, it's just like cotton coming out of it because they're not actually like frozen. And, uh, you know, there is a technique where, you know, you've seen it in movies where the people like the image is actually frozen and like mm-hmm. they go around and they film it. But I think it's people because you can tell some of them are just standing still like mm-hmm. they're, wa- they're wavering a little bit. I thought that was really cool. I, I like the tactility of this. No, there's like a handmade quality to a lot of right. this stuff. That was definitely the case with Grand Budapest Hotel, where you could tell he was using a lot of miniatures and stuff like that, stuff that they would have used in sort of classic Hollywood that um, you would definitely just use CGI for now. But by using like miniatures and stuff like that, it um, it's obviously not realistic, but it sort of like contributes to the reality of the, um, you know, the internal logic of the thing, because everything's sort of stylized and colorful anyway. So it really sort of fits in with this whole sort of mood of it. Um, I remember but- one film critic said uh, it was about one of his animated films, Fantastic Mr. Fox, but he said that Wes Anderson makes films that you want to crawl inside and play with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's very true. There, There's just this great joy taken in every little detail, the production design and the costumes and the mm-hmm. lettering and like where everything is placed on the screen. There's just this this joy uh, and, you know, this enjoyment you get out of just looking at the film and noticing little things in the frame. It's just it's just a visual feast. Yeah, and I mean, he's definitely like, uh, if you were to like argue for auteur cinema, like that the, the director really is sort of the author of a movie and each of his movies have a quality that you can tell from movie to movie. I mean, Wes Anderson is like one of the sort of ultimate exemplars um, of that sort of still holding true in contemporary Hollywood. I mean, wouldn't you agree with that? That he's sort of one of the most auteur of auteur filmmakers working today? Right, and I was listening to an interview where they said it's obviously part of its visual the way he stages scenes and the way he frames a lot of stuff things. is like in the center of the frame which is unusual and stuff like that right but there's also the way characters talk the use of narration frequently the, i mean it's not just a visual like his films look like wes anderson film there's many things that make his films very unique and make him an auteur um yeah so i no, I'm, and there's I'm definitely a, like a sort of melancholic aspect and also sort of like looking to the past in a lot of his movies um, right. This one is obviously set in a sort of 
well, it's sort of like doesn't really tell you when it is. It's just sort of sometime after World War Two. Right. Uh, I, I, there was some interview where he said it's set in like 1940, 50, 87. You know, like he, yeah. it's, it's, it's vague. I mean, a lot of his movies, um, it's interesting, the two Andersons, Paul Thomas Anderson, Wes Anderson, uh, a majority of their films are period pieces. You know, with Paul Thomas Anderson, he has his new film, Licorice Pizza, coming out. You have The Master, Phantom Thread, There Will Be Blood, Boogie Nights. With Wes Anderson, you know, there's the Grand Budapest Hotel, mm-hmm. and which is sort um, of interwar, sort of period post World War One. Right. Well, I mean, I'm actually thinking about it right now. Even if his films aren't explicitly said they're set in the past, there's this kind of nostalgia. Well, like Royal like Tenenbaums that. is exactly like that. Like it sort of takes right. place in like a nowhere time that exists in some picture book that's in like the right. attic of your grandma's house or something. Right. Yeah. There's this kind of uh, like storybook quality where even if it is like extensively set in the present day, it's it feels like it's in another world in another time period, mm-hmm. like outside of our timeline. Yeah. Well, especially I mean, I think in Holding True, like I watched Rushmore the other day, like that feels like a period piece now because obviously there's no like cell phones and the Internet isn't a part of it at all. So obviously when it was made, like that's really how the world was. But I mean, the internet was around, but they just chose not to like include any sort of technology or anything, which gives it a sort of timeless quality. Um, I remember that- uh, Greta Gerwig talking about Lady Bird. I mean, partially the timeline, you know, lines up somewhat with like how old she would have been, but mm-hmm. she purposely wanted to set a film with young people, like right before cell phones, like everyone had a cell phone. Like it's mm-hmm. like 9-11 happens in the film, Lady mm-hmm. Bird, it's mentioned in passing. Um, so I've heard a lot of screenwriters and directors say that having films set in the present day, that cell phones are very uncinematic and they're obnoxious to deal with and either like you have a horror film where like oh we have no cell reception you (laughs) have to excuse it or like the only film i can think of uh or one of the few that really used it in an interesting way was the olivia asasa's film personal shopper that used texting uh in an interesting way but yeah it's it's nice to see movies where i mean i've seen tv shows even ones i really like where i just feel like there's way too many cell phones way too much texting i'm tired of seeing people on their stupid phones <laughs> like i put my phone away to watch this and the, all the characters are just on their phones the whole time but uh yeah i mean have we gotten the, a cell phone in any wes anderson movie oh <laughs> i'm sure one in darjeeling limited <laughs> i'm sure that there's uh you know oh i'm not sure uh but there might not be. <laughs> I mean, but there's also the enjoyment of seeing um, the old technology in his films, like ones that are period pieces. Like oh, yeah. And he, he romanticizes the sort of analog technology like um, uh, typewriters and record players and old radios and stuff like that. He definitely seems like someone who, uh, in, you know, uh, wallow, not wallows, but he definitely emphasizes nostalgia to a certain extent yeah. in his movies and, and this one like, is very much about like a magazine a literary sort of magazine which is something that does not exist anymore it's sort of been replaced right. by like newsletters or vlog uh, vlog posts and stuff like that so yeah and it's like it's not just that oh the characters type on typewriters but he says like very specific brands and like mm-hmm. they they go and he'll say stuff about the engine of the plane and mm-hmm. there's this kind of uh <laughs> yeah. 
it's real joy in being very specific in the details. Yes. Um, he's a very rich world building. But yeah, I enjoyed the film. Like I said, it's not like top tier Wes Anderson, but I, I really enjoyed it. And um, it's not gotten quite as good reviews as some of, I mean, like even Isle of Dogs got a higher Metacritic yeah. rating by almost 10 points. Um, but uh, what's your favorite? You've said you've seen all of his films, except you haven't seen all of Isle of Dogs. My mm-hmm. favorite actually is Fantastic Mr. Fox. I grew up loving Roald Dahl, and I actually rewatched that for the first time since I saw it when it came out in the theater, and it's just so lovely. What's your yeah. favorite? I mean, the first one I really got into was Royal Tenenbaums, um, because I like remember when that came out, and that was a big deal. But then my favorite one for a long time was Rushmore, but then I didn't, I hadn't seen that for a while. And then it was sort of replaced by the Grand Budapest Hotel, which when I saw in 2014, I was like, this is the best Wes Anderson movie yet. I don't think anything can replace that. But having watched Rushmore again recently, I think that might have regained its place on my favorite Wes Anderson movies because I, I, it feels like a very like, Bottle Rocket is like so low budget that it just feels very different than his other movies. And I think Rushmore is a nice sort of medium between Bottle Rocket and his later movies. Um, and it's still, you know, it really gets that trademark Wes Anderson style with uh, some really stylized sequences. And you get the great sort of 60s soundtrack um, that he, I mean, he's he uses music better than, I mean, a lot of people. <laughs> There's a great drop of a, a, a what is it en- Enrico Morricone is that the name of the Ennio Morricone yeah um, right in the sort of uh <laughs> Timothy Chalamet sequence so he just has a he has a gift with using music and I think Rushmore is sort of the best soundtrack he put together so I think Rushmore is probably my favorite long answer. so I don't <laughs> like to do this with every movie but I guess we should um since this is award season um Wes Anderson how many Oscar nominations does he have guests Man, I think he got nominated for Moonrise Kingdom, and I think he got nominated for Grand Budapest Hotel and World Tenenbaum. So I'm going to say four, seven, seven. But he hasn't won any. No. What was the only one he's been nominated for Best Director for? Grand Budapest Hotel. Right. Sorry. He's nominated yeah. for screenplays for Royal Tenenbaums, Moonrise Kingdom, Grand Budapest Hotel. Is nominated for Best Director for Grand Budapest Best Picture because he's one of the producers and uh-huh. he was nominated for Best Animated Film for his two animated films. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, I don't think he's going to... I I would be very surprised if he got nominated for Best Director. Screenplay, be, though. Uh, I'm thinking that maybe not, but uh, I think it, it very likely will get some technical awards like production design and yeah. that, that wouldn't surprise me. Um, but it's interesting because this one got pushed back. I think, if I'm not mistaken, this one was completely shot before COVID, but it, you know, got delayed because of COVID being released, and it took a long time for it to come out. Like I think yeah, it's apparently photography for- wrapped in March 2019. So Ooh. that's a hell of a long post production. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah. So I think that, and he's already in the midst of shooting, uh, if not already finished, the actual shooting of his new film that stars Tom Hanks, Margot Robbie, and Scarlett Johansson. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so he will p- probably have. It seems quite likely we'll have two years in a row with a Wes Anderson film. Well, just just a minute for the the cast before we move on, like. Um, it seems like Edward Norton is like exclusively in Wes Anderson movies now. I thought he was really good as the sort of brains behind the crime and the third part of it. So I don't know. Just I like seeing Edward Norton in movies and 
it seems to have the best brought out of him by being in Wes Anderson movies. And he really fits into the whole sort of mood. And also Adrian Brody, who uh, I think Wes Anderson has uh, contributed to the sort of Adrian Brody comeback because he cast him in Grand Budapest Hotel and stuff like that. So I don't know. Right. It seems like he's got a gift for, for casting and really bringing out sort of essential characteristics of these actors and really making them work in these settings. Jeffrey Wright was a particularly... Uh, good addition i thought right well i mean there's so many people that i was like wait was edward norton even in this one like he, some of <laughs> them are bare i mean he's even barely in it though well i know he's in it for like three minutes but i thought they were great three minutes he was he's the guy who didn't eat the whatever specific food is right. the, the key one of the things <clears throat> sears was in it for like literally 30 seconds well, a little bit more, but I mean, she's um, the uh, but perhaps Edward Norton has not been acting too much because he directed a film that he starred in Brother Motherless Brooklyn, which probably mm-hmm. took up a lot of his time. That's true. Um, but yeah, he um, the last credited film he had besides that movie he directed was Isle of Dogs. Yeah. <laughs> in 2018 uh, (laughs) he's like exclusively in wes anderson which is i'm okay with that (laughs) yeah he is going to be in knives out too with everyone else on earth like i was wondering i wonder what um besides robert altman's the player i seriously think that the french dispatch has to be pretty high on the list of films with the most oscar winners and nominees ever because this one has like you know it's a ton yeah <laughs> like maybe I mean, like 10 if yeah not more right and then some of them you may not even realize like bob balaban nominated for best picture for gossard park and fisher stevens won an oscar for best documentary for the cove mm-hmm. i mean it's like kind of crazy how many i mean i actually think on imdb which you can't always trust but um the the you know they say that um you know it well i mean and i you know there it's interesting. Yeah, it says there's seven Oscar winners and nine nominees. Yeah. I mean, that has to be a record. I mean, the yeah. player, there are a lot the of them player are kind of doesn't count. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. A lot of them are like cameos and stuff like that. Right. But, um, and then there's a film, I don't know how many of them are actually, I'm, I'm sure there's not very many Oscar winners or nominees, uh, but like there's those crazy cast movies, like it's a mad, 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 mad world, but most yeah. of those were not. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Buddy Hackett. Maybe, maybe Emmys and Tonys. <laughs> right. But um, yeah, so I, I definitely recommend The French Dis. It's also like, if you like Wes Anderson films, you're going to like oh, this Oh, you're going to love if you're it. you're not yeah. a fan, you're, you're not going to be a fan of it. <laughs> no, probably not. This is probably not like a good intro to Wes Anderson. No, um, Rushmore probably would be a good one yeah, to start with. I, no, definitely. Um, or yeah. Moonrise Kingdom. I think Moonrise Kingdom is a little less sort of super stylized. And it's also a little sort of more personal. It's, and, it's as stylized as any movie's ever done, I feel like. Well, Moonrise parts Kingdom. of it. But it's also, you know, about like, it's, you know, it's not about a literary magazine in France. It's about like two kids running away and have a, a sort of like youth you know sort of like rebellious sort of semi-vacation which i think most people it'll be easier to relate to than being a concierge at a hotel in the alps (laughs) but like we said it feels like every movie he's done it it's wes anderson squared every time yes but um yeah i i mean it's funny there are some people that think that his weakest film is the life aquatic with steve zissou and other people think that's their favorite film yeah it's just interesting how like i think that one is one of his most droll movies but some people like it the best yes i have a that friend one is who super super stylized 
Right. It but has, yeah, it's so, a very specific aesthetic that's extremely Wes Anderson. Right. But, but yeah, uh, <laughs> we've talked about this for a long time. <laughs> so for the second Timothy Chalamet uh, vehicle um, of this October to be released is Dune, directed by Denis Villeneuve, um, who has also directed Sicario, Blade Runner 2049, and Arrival, uh, starring Timothy Chalamet, Rebecca Ferguson. Oscar Isaac, Josh Brolin, and a whole bunch of other people. Um, it is an adaptation of a very successful science fiction book, um, which is set in the far future and follows Paul Atreides as his family, the noble house Atreides, is thrust into a war for the deadly in an hospitable desert planet, Arrakis. So there's a lot of sort of exposition and world building at the beginning of this movie. This is one that was uh, very much affected by the COVID delay. It was supposed to come out fall 2020, but was pushed back and originally premiered at the Venice Film Festival this September and was released wide October 8th, 2021 in a simultaneous release on HBO Max and in theaters. Um, This was, I think, a pretty big IMAX hit. I think we both saw it in that format. Um, a Metacritic score of 74 and a Rotten Tomatoes score of 83. Um, this definitely had a good crowd when I saw it. Much, much bigger than um, the French Dispatch. I think this was probably the biggest crowd outside of a film festival of any movie I've seen since uh, COVID sort of movie watching came back. Was that true of you or is the French Dispatch have a bigger crowd? I saw it in IMAX Saturday night, the opening weekend. Did you see it opening weekend or at least week? I saw it Monday opening weekend. So sort okay. of at the tail end of that. Right. Yeah. I saw it with one of my favorite high school teachers. Uh, we hadn't seen each other since before the pandemic. And yeah, we saw it in IMAX. Why don't you start with your reaction? Because I kind of talked about the French Dispatch. First. Well, I thought it was... <laughs> one of the weirder really big budget Hollywood movies I've seen in a while um, I thought Stellan Skarsgård was a, a real choice uh, when I'm so used to sort of seeing like Marvel bad guys which are like all sort of CGI and a lot of them are like made of mechanical parts or they're aliens it was very interesting to see the bad guy be like a floating muscular baby covered in oil <laughs> So I enjoyed that part of it. And I thought that was a very brave choice for a, a major Hollywood production. And um, I, I thought it was, I thought it was really good. I thought uh, seeing it with a big crowd in IMAX definitely enhanced the experience because in IMAX, like the sound was like almost sort of overwhelming. It really sort of puts you right in the sort of the middle of it. And uh, um, it, it, I mean, this movie, obviously it's a sci-fi movie, so it sort of needs to use CGI, but I thought this was, Definitely one of the better sort of uh, uses of CGI in a movie to make it sort of seem incredibly uh, immersive with the sets they built, which which seems like they built like giant, giant sets and uh, sort of um, it seemed like the production design and this whole, whole sort of uh, um, uh, crew sort of side of this did a really good job of making it feel like it was a physical world that these characters were really inhabiting and living in. And I thought that the... Uh, the use of CGI really complemented the uh, the real world sets and obviously the real world location shooting that they did in a spot made famous by Lawrence of Arabia in um, what's it called Wadi Rum I believe is what the name of the sort of um, valley in Jordan is called which they made really really good use of so it's sort of uh, resp- it's it's 
in dialogue with Lawrence of Arabia and the other sort of major epics that are making use of these desert locations. And obviously um, the first Star Wars is brought to your mind when you're watching this movie, which is mostly set on a desert planet. But apparently, um, like most things in Star Wars, George Lucas took that from Dune. So it's it's not a coincidence that it, it has sort of Star Wars episode four vibes. I get confused about which one is which for Star Wars. But I enjoyed this much, much more than any of the, the recent Star Wars movies, which seemed, and it actually shares a cast member in Oscar Isaac, but those movies just seem like total sort of products of the studio and are designed to like sell merchandise, which this movie did not feel like at all, um, which I thought was very refreshing. And also, I mean, it, <laughs> it felt very serious and it felt like, uh, you know, like there were actual consequences in the movie. So you get sort of used to seeing Star Wars movies and, Marvel movies where like the big actors have a sort of plot armor where you know they're not going to die because they're these big actors and of course they're going to be in the sequel which this movie did not have at all um so at the end of the day I thought it was as someone who's sort of used to seeing big Hollywood movies be Star Wars movies or Marvel movies I thought that it was a lot more (laughs) dark and a lot and asking a lot more sort of serious questions in those movies. And I, I enjoyed that immensely. I thought this was one of the better sort of hundred million plus Hollywood movies I've seen in a very long time. Uh, what did you think of it, Jonathan? I think it's a technical marvel. Uh, there's a weight to the film that you said is missing in a lot of the Marvel movies and comic book movies, Fast and Furious. Uh, a lot of the generic franchise movies these days, it feels like... Yes, you can tell that there's certainly a lot of CGI in the film, but there's a tactility and a weight to it. Like when those spaceships, you know, lift off the ground and they go through the air and when there's these massive, you know, battle scenes, like there is some basis in reality, even though it's a very fantastical film in a lot of ways. Um, The production design, the costumes, the use of actual locations is really breathtaking um i think that it has a really impressive cast um timothy chalamet is an interesting choice because you know we've talked before about how you know he's you know what 26 or 7 or something but he looks like he's 15 you know sort of perpetually like the gorgeous youth from greek sculpture basically Right. (laughs) right he's one of those where a lot of times like with dear evan hansen like if someone's supposed to be a certain age they're actually like 10 years older but this one he really feels like the age the guy's supposed to be probably uh you know, even if he's, I don't know how old the character is supposed to be at the beginning of the character it. in the novel is supposed to be, I think like 16, but I but think I believe yeah. he, he pulls off being 16. No, he really actually does. Especially when he's with Josh Brolin, who's only like four, or sorry, uh, Oscar Isaac, who's only like sort of mid forties, but looks like way older than Timothy Chalamet in this movie. So you really buy the father son, which I was a little skeptical of going into it. I was like, they're, are they really going to sell that Timothy Chalamet's Oscar Isaac's son? But, you know, right. I believe um, it. My main problem with the movie is that I, there wasn't much for me to contemplate. Like my second favorite film of all time is 2001 A Space Odyssey. And that movie makes me think. It makes me consider the universe and what does it mean to be human. And I am not generally a fan of big science fiction films, 
And I felt like Dune was this incredible technical achievement. But at the end of the film, I was like, but there's nothing for me to ponder. It's all just kind of, it's not that the movie is stupid and without any kind of substance, but it's very straightforward and it's a lot of plot. And I feel like another problem with the movie is that like this needed to be cinema, but we really kind of have watched half a movie. Yeah. And it feels like dramatically kind of, unsatisfying because it feels like we sit we, we sit through this two hour and you know nearly 40 minute movie and we feel like we've watched like a really long prologue in the first act <laughs> or something yeah it feels like the, like there's so much dramatic setting up but without a pay off yeah. a lot of it's waiting and nothing's really happening and not that it's not like really boring but I feel like it, it's like it's it it shouldn't be a mini series because it really needs the giant screen but at the same time it feels dramatically unsatisfying in a lot of ways because it's like we're only watching half a movie maybe it will be different if we have the option to like watch you know a double feature of these two movies mm-hmm. but yeah i mean it it's one of those movies and i saw it in the theater i was like oh i'm swept up and it's really beautiful and then like 10 minutes after the movie was over, I'm like, yeah, I never need to see that movie again. <laughs> yeah. I just felt, it's just not my type of movie in general. I mean, it's just like big, ponderous science fiction movies. And also they don't really have anything to contemplate afterwards. Like that doesn't yeah. really interest me so much. I mean, uh, like I, I, I admired it on a technical level, but like I honestly, as the farther I get away from the experience of seeing it on IMAX, I'm like, Oh, I want to like I have no desire to like sit and watch it on HBO Max at home. No, I agree with that. I was sort of like thinking about rewatching it on HBO and I was like, mm, I don't know if I'd enjoy it that way. And it might actually make me like it less if I see it on this small screen. And it'll sort of make me question what I enjoyed about it on the big screen in the first place. But I mean, you were when they like the big battle scene happened about halfway through, like <laughs> you were wrapped up in it, weren't you? Like you were like, oh man, this is thrilling. Well, that's the other thing too, is like, I'm not emotionally invested in these characters very much. It's just yeah. like, like, I feel like the film is like all set up. Like these are the characters, this is what's happening. And then it ends and it's like, yeah. Okay. Well, I'll wait for part two. <laughs> and I feel like there's like the, the film is about, you know, it's like the spice. About like colonialism harvest. and stuff like What's that. A, it, but the thing is those things are there but it's just like, oh, the spice harvesting is like oil and this is like that. But there's nothing beyond that to ponder. Like 2001, no, no. every time I see it, it makes me like seriously think. Yeah. And Dune is just there and it's nothing's like it's not thought provoking. It's well, just it's, spectacle. 2001 makes really good use of like. There's hardly any talking and you you hardly get any information about what's actually happening. So a lot of like what you talk about for 2001 that really makes you think about stuff is like entirely the visual image. Um, and Dune has a lot more talking and it's like about stuff happening. So it doesn't sort of rely on the sort of meanings in the visual image as much as a 2001 would do because it's um, and it's like about something in a way 2001 is sort of more like a visual poem that goes on for yeah, two and a half that, hours <laughs> I, and the, the problem for me with Dune is that it doesn't what it's about doesn't interest you <laughs> and it doesn't have 
it doesn't use the form of cinema to do anything besides dazzle us on a technical level like ooh these spaceships are really cool and look at yeah. the locations shooting in the well, do you think it's design. limited by being an adaptation in that sense because it needs to convey so much story information well, I mean, I, I can I quote, uh, I was reading Richard Brody's review and he often annoys me because he can, you know, I, 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 he's a really good writer, but I agreed with him when he was talking about the new Dune. He says that it hasn't, uh, that Villeneuve has an ability, an inability to go beyond the ironclad dictates of a script and share yeah. with viewers the wonders and terrors of impossible worlds. And he also wrote, his point of view is without a second level, without physicality, without visceral impact, without an unconscious. The movie stripped down material world correlates with a stripped down emotional one, narrow, facile, and unambiguous. unambiguous. I'm not quite as harsh as that, but I do feel like there's no there there besides the surface. Like there's It was no... left for the actors to do a lot of that, to sort of make yeah. you buy into their characters or to sort of express the relationships between them like we hardly got anything about sort of the timothy chalamet character and his mom about like what their sort of real relationship was so a lot of that was sort of dependent on the actors just sort of using you know looks or intonations to sort of express a lot that wasn't necessarily there on the script so i you know i don't disagree with him on that that he sort of he shoots the scene as it's written in a really visually stunning sort of way but it's not like he's actually intoning the images with a lot of meanings you can take for them or yeah i mean i agree with that he's like but he's not like a director for hire no like, but i just feel like there's not enough poetry to the imagery and this the, the the he doesn't take the form of cinema and like make me wonder and ponder the universe i think it's he does a like, bit of oh, that in arrival um yeah and it's a better movie i mean see yeah. i love blade runner 20 49 like that was one of the five best films that year yeah. and there's such an evocative mood you know it has you know it's pulling from the original Ridley Scott film it has this film noir feel to it yeah. and that movie I liked much much more than Dune um, yeah. I feel like that was not that that movie it, it was so much coming from its mood and its atmosphere and its world building and was not bogged down in all this talky talk and plot and plot yeah uh, and i feel like dune was too much um it's like i don't care what's happening in dune <laughs> yeah, i don't it care does, about arrakis or the house no. of Trades. <laughs> i just it doesn't it doesn't interest me and it, no, even and sort the, of like saying the different houses is kind of silly like, yeah i mean that's the, that's the problem that i have with a lot of science fiction is that you know when it's a metaphor for something deep and philosophical and like I can relate to my life, but when they're like the house of these and the blah, 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 it's like, it's just, it like, I mean, Star Wars is a very different thing, but like Star Wars, I'm also like, this is just silly kid stuff. Like <laughs> so who cares? I know it's soap opera. <laughs> yeah. You know? And I feel like, you know, Dune is more adult, but at the same time, it's just kind of more of the, the dingy dongs and the flingy flongs are on the planet. Yes. Are, you know, and no, it doesn't like, really resemble our day-to-day -day lives in any sort of real way, because obviously we're not the sons of great lords of great houses who are dealing with this intergalactic diplomacy and stuff like that. It's very foreign to everyday experience. And the best sci-fi movie like makes you feel like, um, you know, you have an insight into the everyday experience of normal sort of people in these worlds. Like Blade Runner does that really, really well. Um, Which this one like doesn't more. do that at all. Well, uh, which, the two I mean, Blade if, Runners? 
Well, no, of like the Denis Villeneuve films you've seen, like what's your favorite? I think Arrival hit me sort of on the hardest emotional level. Um, I think he does have sort of a distance emotionally in a lot of his movies, like Sicario. It's never like I am really relating to Emily Blunt's character's experience. Yeah, I was disappointed in that movie. (laughs) It's weird. I actually like another film that same year that I liked more that no one else seemed to is I actually really liked Michael Mann's black hat and yeah, you're the only like one Sicar- <laughs> yeah it's better than sicario i thought yeah um but, but yeah, that I movie thought- like works really well technically it's ex- extremely suspenseful and it like has a real tactility so it where you feel like when people get hit or they shoot somebody like it's really someone being shot so i mean he's a really gifted director i mean um but he's also visually- like it's just like to me like i'm not the biggest fan of christopher nolan it's with both it's of similar them. It's like I res- I deeply I like I really respect them as um directors Craftsmen. but it just seems so boring and like serious and like pretentious yes. like <laughs> they just seem like they serious don't... is a good word to describe both of them yeah I mean I just feel like it, it, it and the problem is what they're making is really not that serious no, and no. profound. <laughs> yeah. They're making like 13-year-old boy movies yes. with like pew-pew lasers and... Only flying. with $100 million budgets. I know. And but the like, only who, character who really seems like he's having fun is Jason Momoa, who I thought was one of the yeah. better parts of this movie. Well, I mean, I would say Stalin Skarsgård, too. Oh, he's yeah. <laughs> he's like, give me more bad baby stuff to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's really weird that like you start, you know, talking about the movie and like, let's go to the fat baby <laughs> It was so striking and it was so different. That's definitely not something you'd see in a Marvel movie. Well, let's just say uh, what our relationship to Dune is. Have you ever read the novel or seen the David Lynch film or the Alejandro Jodorowsky documentary about his failed attempt or the miniseries that's more faithful that was like in the early 2000s? Have you seen anything? I have not read the book. I've seen the David Lynch movie. Um which I was extremely bored by and I did not like at all. <laughs> so yeah. that was my relationship with Dune before this. So I like this one much, much more than yeah. that one. Yeah. The David Lynch film is easily his uh, weakest film. And to be fair, he was not given final cut. And yeah. I don't think it's entirely like, Oh, it was complete. I mean, I think he probably was in over his head and he just yeah. wasn't it. You know, it's his third feature film after. And it was supposed to be like a Star Wars competitor. Like it was supposed to be a really big Hollywood movie. And the fact they were trying to cram this, you know, you know, what's now going to be like a five hour film, you know, with the two parts into like under two and a half hours. Yeah. Um, But doomed to failure, basically. Yeah. Right. And uh, I really like and I recommend the uh, documentary Jodorowsky's Dune, where uh, the crazy Chilean director who's now in his early 90s in the 1970s he went to hollywood to try to make a film adaptation and he had the craziest lineup of talent hr geiger who was went on to use some of the designs in alien uh was going to work on the film and pink floyd was going to do the music and the cast was include orson wells salvador dolly gloria swanson and mick jagger and he had the entire film storyboarded in color in this giant book every shot and camera movement all the spaceships, all of it designed and laid out and none of the studios would make it. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting that in that documentary, Nicholas Winding Refn, the director of Drive said that he thinks that if that film had come out and well, if it had gotten made and come out, it would have been before Star Wars and it would have quite possibly 
drastically changed like the history of cinema in America. Like the Jaws, Star Wars, modern blockbuster, it would have been very, very different world yeah. if that movie had come out. Like what and if, been successful. Right. But um, yeah, so it's like, I, I admire Christopher Nolan and this new Dune is very handsomely made, but at the same time, like I miss Stanley Kubrick. I miss <laughs> like, and it's like, I don't expect a movie like under the skin to like, you know, grab the kids and like make uh, $500 million worldwide, but like under the skin. Everyone's tweeting like, about under the skin. Right, right. Have you ever actually seen that movie? That's the uh, Scarlett Johansson one. Right. Yeah, it's got one of the most upsetting scenes I've ever seen in any movie involving yeah, like a beat to, and tides. <laughs> to me, that's like one of the like five best movies of the previous decade. Like that's a masterpiece to me. And that like uh, that's definitely a thought provoking science fiction movie. I'll say right. That and and it's also visually stunning. I mean, it's a much much smaller scale film, both like like literally like. No, but in some ways, and... grapples with bigger questions than Dune does. Right, but that movie. I've seen it multiple times. And it's made me think, and it and it's uh, that movie's also kind of cold and distancing, but at the same time, there's kind of an emotional quality to it that it like even that's part, that is what the emotion is, and it actually yeah. ends up being uh, moving about what does it mean to be human. Uh, but I just feel like Dune. It's like it's a movie I give thumbs up to, but I have no desire to ever see it again. And yeah, it's just like the idea of watching it again is like, oh god, I don't want to watch that again. Like, it's it, have you ever seen a movie you're like, that's a I was that's a good movie. I don't ever want to see it again. And not even like, oh, it's so disturbing, or it's like, it's just you said you didn't even want to watch it on HBO Max again. It just it seems like a I know, but I think like. When I was watching it, I was like, this feels like a big movie. I'm excited that this is a big movie that people are seeing. Um, so I don't know. I, maybe I liked it more sort of for what it represents in the sort of contemporary movie industry where it seems like, we're, you know, we're just doomed to get Marvel movie after Marvel movie and nothing is actually has any substance to it. And, you know, maybe so I'm more excited about it just feeling different, but um, well, it's like, is this movie just because it's more gray and longer and more does serious? Does that actually that make, make it better? <laughs> more profound and actually no. have more substance than, you know, it's like, uh, I mean, I, you know, I do think it's, I mean, I actually, this is really weird. And I, my opinion of the Star Wars series means nothing because I don't care about Star Wars, but like, I actually really like The Last Jedi and like that movie's more fun to me than Dune. Like I had a better, wow. like I would rather rewatch that than Dune. Oh, I don't know. There's some parts of The Last Jedi I was like, this sucks. The whole part where they go to the casino planet, I was just like, this is stupid. <laughs> but Which, it's just... Uh, and no, no, there are definitely parts of The Last Jedi that I enjoyed a lot more. I mean, the sort of throne room fight sequence, there's nothing in this movie that measures up to that on sort of like an action level. And sort of the, like the action scenes in this themselves... Um, like the whole shield penetration thing. I don't know. That was that that didn't really work for me. It was more sort of like the scale of it just felt very epic in some of the scenes um, in a way that I think is 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 difficult to achieve. Um, it, you know, it felt it felt very big. Maybe seeing it on IMAX contributed to that. But um, and you're right that just because it's like darker and people die doesn't necessarily mean it's profound or that it actually right. offers like, anything more than 
Captain America Civil War. I mean, not that it really means too much, but like The Last Jedi has a full 10 points higher on Metacritic than Dune. Really? Yeah, yeah, Dune has a Rise of Skywalker definitely doesn't, except if it's terrible. (laughs) One of of the funniest things, there was this video that Rotten Tomatoes, or it might have been, I don't know if it was Rotten Tomatoes actually did it, or if it was another website. They had like the reveal of the Rotten Tomatoes score, the Rise of Skywalker. It was like, it was like 52. (laughs) It's like like disappointing. I've seen, I I never even saw it. It's really, really bad. Like, it's like the it's the movie you can tell is a studio noted like to death. Right. Can we get and a like scene the where thing, they do this? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I it's like t- what I like so much about The Last Jedi is that it's like they give Ryan, Ryan Johnson it's like this is where The Force Awakens left off. You can write and direct a Star Wars movie and it seems like they kind of left him alone. No, but and Disney then he, looks back on that and sees it as a failure because it I know, generated <laughs> so much but hatred me, among the audience but to me it's like objectively the best film since empire strikes back yeah which shows you that they are not making things for the right intentions i know and they fired they <laughs> fired the uh the lord miller from the lego movie solo one Trump's. yeah right and like i it's just when ryan johnson was supposed to make a trilogy like entirely original that he had total control over and after um last jedi they were like no <laughs> we don't want you to touch star wars again well i don't want to ramble about stars but i'll just say that i did see someone on twitter right once and i totally agree with this the number one type of person that hates star wars is a star wars fan <laughs> they, yeah. they're the most <laughs> critical and nitpicky and and some of it's like really you know like why there have to be you know people of color and women in my star wars now like there's that you know that's really like oh okay, they're, they're all very very anymore. precious about it and anything that's sort of different right. than their perspective of what star wars should be they're going to get very upset about it's similar to how people treated the last season of game of thrones the sort of fans thinking that they have control over this like they own the material right. and that's not really a healthy place right. when you have filmmakers with real i mean vision. the last like three episodes of the last season of game of thrones were kind of well i know yeah yeah but i think that people what made people so angry is that the character didn't behave the way that they wanted the character to behave yeah they'll phrase it not like i was disappointed (laughs) they'll be like this is not how this should happen yeah exactly (laughs) they wouldn't not my daenerys so you get that with the star wars movies people are really upset at luke's sort of behavior in the last jedi and they're like this isn't my luke (laughs) see I think one of the best moments in The Last Jedi is when he just tosses the lightsaber behind him. That's No, but that's me, what people hated the most. <laughs> I know. To me, that's one of the best moments in the whole movie. Uh-huh. It's yeah. not like, oh, this is like scripture. Some and sacred, like this. yeah. Yeah. It's like, that's no, this is the- bullshit. <laughs> this whole thing is bullshit. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, with Dune, it's like, it's... No, but I, I think at the end of the day, he is a bit of a slave to the source material because I listened to an interview that he like write it for the first time when he was 12 and he had an idea of how he wanted to shoot everything ever since then. So when he finally got to do it, everything just had to be, you know, the novel and he couldn't sort of disrespect the source material. So maybe if there was someone who made it who was a little less precious about the source material, they would have gone in more interesting directions. This but, would never happen and he would not want to do it. But I just have, I fat, I like, uh, I just, my mouth waters at the idea of what if David Lynch today was given $20 million <laughs> to make Dune? Like, and to, he made to make it a like, 20 hour Dune? 
Or like, <laughs> like Inland Empire version of Dune, like yeah. totally like, because I mean, that's the thing too with like Christopher Nolan and Denis Villeneuve. It's like, I mean, especially with Nolan, it's like, I, he's never made like a really weird movie and I wanted him to take no. to, I mean like, David Lynch movies at the, at the end of the day are like slightly incoherent and they don't really slightly? <laughs> well they don't really, <laughs> yeah they're incoherent yeah. and studio franchise movies the audience needs to know what's happening so <laughs> David Lynch is sort of off the table when it comes to big studio right. franchise right. sort of things but if I mean, if it weren't a franchise, if it was just like a solo movie, I would be very yeah. interested to see what he had to do with Dune. I remember, I, and the studio heads and executives can be so stupid sometimes. I was remembering there was an interview where they had filmed someone from the back in a rainstorm, and they had only shot footage of the character from the back. And the studio said that we should have a shot of the person's face so that the audience like knows for sure it's his character. So just flip the f- image. Uh-huh. And they're like, we only shot it from the back. It's like, yeah, we'll just flip the image though. Like the executive did not understand <laughs> that you had to have a camera in the opposite direction. Yeah. You couldn't just flip the We don't the have image. the footage, sir. <laughs> I know, I know. But um, yeah, I mean, I definitely will want to see part two. And I think that- Do you think that he will have sort of more room to work with in part two? That he won't be such a slave sort of to the story? What's well, almost like to make the first movie- well, like to make the second movie he had to like get this movie is almost like a big pitch it's like hey this is what this will look like right <laughs> so hopefully yeah. he has sort of more room to work with i mean uh, it might have been it might have made more sense to do it like shoot it as one giant five-hour film and release it like with like almost like kill bill like but, but even a shorter amount of time like release it within like because the next one's not going to come out for probably another two years. Two, two or three years, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, why didn't they shoot it as one giant movie and, like, release it within six months of each other? That's because, I mean, the studio apparently didn't expect this movie to make any money. <laughs> and they well, needed... why did they greenlight it in the first place? Then? I don't know. <laughs> like, what's, like, it would just be, it's like with, I mean, I'm not saying, I mean, this was a really bad movie, but they, like, the Golden Compass was going to start this franchise, yeah. and then the, the first one, like, shit the You bed. can always so, pull the plug after the first one doesn't make money. Yeah. Like, the Lemony Snicket also is another one where, with the Jim Carrey film yeah you know, it was supposed, it was supposed to be, to be a franchise scene. right but um that's no, but the thing that somehow, i listened some... to an interview and he said that it would have like killed him to do two movies back to back so maybe that's true but yeah and who knows like maybe the next one will have a very different feel and a very different tone and um will deliver more and toward the, the sort of uh in, not intele- maybe intellectuals right word but sort of give you more to think about after you leave well, the theater it's like i I want it to be more 2001 under the skin, like cerebral and like, oh, this is thought provoking and really kind of arty and like this is a work of cinema or like just make it a little more fun and less pretentious, like a Star Wars movie and not just have it a little more space opera. Yeah, like I would prefer it to be like a 2001 and under the skin, but it's like it's like this kind of it manages to be neither one. Yeah, it's like I felt the way about Interstellar is that it like has the kind of this the cinematic beauty of a Kubrick film, but it it's hard. It was kind of like the schmaltzy like Spielberg movie that yeah. like and I, I don't even it didn't Spielberg. live up to either one. 
yeah it was like this it it, it didn't earn the like legit emotions of the best spielberg films and it was not as poetic and cerebral as the best 2001 film. Yeah. yeah it's like in the trailer for under the skin one film critic says we have a new heir to kubrick and i think even though jonathan glazer has only directed three films in over 20 years uh he deserves that title not christopher nolan and like no one you know n- n- nobody knows uh the name jonathan glazer nearly as much as christopher nolan or even yeah. denis villeneuve and i can't wait for his next movie whenever he gets it made i mean it was like like under the skin was almost a decade ago now and and his previous film before that was about it almost like eight years before that so you know i it's like he's turning he's kubrick, he's like kubrick in that way too i mean yeah. like he did uh, but without the, the budget because kubrick what made him so special is he was doing this within the studio system right. um which, well that's what's sad is that there there could not be a kubrick today no no he couldn't like, be working for mgm or sony or <laughs> warner brothers right. i mean and imagine make these sort of movies it's like you know eyes wide shut like i'm not sure which one of these four restaurants i want to shoot in let's shoot a hundred takes in every single <laughs> all four of them yeah exactly or like you know harvey Keitel walking through a door 40 times 70 yeah. times it's and just then he's not like, gonna happen anymore. fincher i mean is kind of the closest to that level. I've, and i've even heard him say in an interview with mank that he said like I don't do a hundred takes every take. Like I maybe do 40 takes every time, (laughs) but like, I think he said there's like plenty of takes where it's not like nearly as many as people would think. Yeah. Oh, it probably differs movie to movie. Because apparently like on Zodiac, he totally destroyed Jake Gyllenhaal who took years to recover. Right. Right. And now who has done that? Taylor Swift. But yes, um, (laughs) just annihilated him again. Jake Gyllenhaal, where are you? Right. And well, I mean, like Zendaya is in this movie like for like 10 15 minutes, minutes but it's been yeah. extremely uh, prominently featured on the advertising and the promotion. To get the kids in. Yeah. Exactly. The TikTok right. generation. Right. But anyway, apparently she's going to be a much which, bigger deal in the second. Which is like, I can't imagine someone like a TikTok generation watching <laughs> this movie and then seeing think, it like, oh, Zendaya. You think it would bore them? <laughs> it would kill them. I mean, <laughs> I can't imagine them. What I mean, I just I have the fantasy of like when Twilight came out of like locking the theater doors and like having them watch, uh, you know, Stalker or a Balatar <laughs> film, Solaris. I know or Jean Dielman. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> it'll look like uh, the the end of Inglorious Bastards where they're all banging on the, the theater right. doors. Get me out! Get me out! right yeah but yeah so i mean i wasn't really bored by dune but uh and i certainly want to see the second part but i just uh it's like a three and a half out of five for you yeah yeah french dispatch four out of five french dispatch might be like a four and a half for me i loved it i thought it was i thought it was great dune i think dune i don't know i don't know i I don't i really don't know how i would have responded if i saw it at home i think I, i i might even not have liked it so imax is definitely the thing that sort of delivers the best and supposedly uh that there's not like the whole rest of the year booked for imax and i think that it might come back to imax so especially if it does yeah go go to see it in imax if you did that's definitely the way to see it i mean the sound was was fantastic for the imax for this um 
I cannot emphasize that enough. The sound is incredible. Did you at least like the sound of it, Jonathan? Yeah, it's like your it's it's one where like your colon feels the music. Yeah, exactly. It like just vibrates yeah. inside of you. Like, oh my god, yeah. the ship is taking off. Oh my god. Han, Hans Zimmer score. Are you getting a little Hans Zimmer fatigue at this point? Uh, well, I always forget which ones. You know, he he, he did he do. Um, he did Interstellar. He did Tenet. Yeah. Yeah. He, Actually, no, he done. didn't do Tenet. Um, the <clears throat> the Icelandic guy did Tenet, I think. Okay, well, uh... <laughs> the Icelandic guy who worked with uh, um, Donald Glover on his uh, his rap albums, Ludwig okay. Granson, is that it? Okay. Nice. <laughs> Recommend both of these. Yeah, no, I, I I mean Dune is certainly worth seeing. There's enough to recommend about it, but I just was kind of left cold by it. Yeah, and I think it's half a film too. It's like I almost feel like we got to see the second half to To really judge this one. Right. Yeah, Yeah, that's probably fair. But yeah. Right. Definitely see it in a theater if you're going to see it. Oh, yeah. A lot of good stuff coming out. A lot of good stuff out right now. Very, very exciting time to be a motion picture fan. Uh, We will be back with you guys next time. Thank you for listening.